Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. My name is Gary. I joyfully serve as senior pastor here at White Plains. And I want to say a special welcome to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for being here. You are an answer to prayer. I've been praying for you and your family this week. And as, as a guest, I hope that you find our church to be a warm and welcoming group of people. Thank you again for being with us this morning. Kids, it's always good seeing you guys here. It's always fun, and especially as Christmas is getting closer. Uh, I'm sure your trees are all decorated and, and your house is looking like Christmas. Um, do you, kids, do you like giving gifts to your family and your, your friends? Is it, is it fun to see them open up a gift maybe you've made for them or you've bought for them on Christmas morning? At my house... I want to start giving presents as soon as we start wrapping presents. In fact, Ruby and I were trying to politic around our house last night and trying to start opening up presents last night. Would that be too early, probably? Too early? I don't think it's too early, but, but it's fun. It's fun to give presents, isn't it? It's, it's also kind of fun to get presents, too, isn't it? I'm going to tell the adults here later this morning, kids, that uh, we give gifts at Christmas because God gives the greatest gift in Jesus. There's the greatest gift that we could get is a gift that forgives us from all the evil things we think and the evil things we do, and that's the gift of Jesus. And that's, that's what I'll, I'll tell the adults that later, but I wanted you all to know that first. Um, Jesus is the best gift, and I hope that this Christmas season you guys are seeing Jesus in the decorations as you guys are getting ready to practice for the skit here in a few minutes um, upstairs. I hope that you're seeing Jesus, and I hope soon you will receive Jesus as a gift, as the gift that God has for you, because he loves, loves you. It's always good seeing you here, kids. Kids, you are dismissed to go to the lobby. You'll be taken up to Kids Church, and uh, Kids Church is for kids in fifth, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. And parents and grandparents, you guys can pick them up after church is over in, uh, in the lobby. As they're leaving, let me welcome our middle school and our high school boys and girls basketball teams and Miss Bewley's class. Thank you all for being with us this morning. It is a joy to have you here. And I understand Miss Bewley's class has lunch plans, but we do have hot dogs. We've been working hard creating the best hot dogs in Allen County for y'all this afternoon. So, so feel free to stick around and, and share a meal with us. Um, I'm going to ask our student ministry director, Cooper Guy, come up here and pray for you all, for your, your teams, your season, your classwork, and your families. And as he's coming, I do want to extend an invitation. If you don't have a church that you regular, regularly attend, we would love for you to, to keep staying with us through the Christmas season and, and join us as we, as we worship Jesus this Christmas. Cooper, would you pray for, for us? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for these teams, Father, in this class that's come to join us today, Father. Father, we lift these students up into your hand. Father, they are your students. And Father, do a work in their lives. Father, we want to see these students change the world. Father, and we want them to do it through you, or we want you to do it through them. Father, just guide them. There's so much in this world that drifts us away or tries to catch our attention, Father. Let them focus on you, on, on what truly matters, Father. Father, we thank you. We love you. Father, we lift up these coaches to you, that they would just guide these young men and women 
closer to you. Father, we love you and we thank you. Let us do your will. Let us see you move. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Cooper. We're going to be continuing our Christmas series this morning. It's the songs of Christmas, and we're going to be looking at four songs, or we have been looking at four songs in the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. We're in Luke chapter 1 and 2 throughout this series. That's leading us up to Christmas Eve. Our kids are going to be doing a retelling of the story, of the Christian story that's in Luke. Uh, I would encourage you to spend some extended time this Christmas season in Luke chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at the four, these four songs here throughout December. And God has given these songs to those who wrote them down, and as Luke recorded them, he has given these songs to them. They're in the Bible, and so God has inspired the writers to write these songs. God inspires us to sing songs as a church, as Christians, we sing songs about him. And as we sing as a church, you and I, as we worship God together, our singing is about God and our singing is to God and our singing is meant to help build up the church, the people of God. So let's look at this second song in our series. It's in Zechariah, uh, the song of Zechariah, it's in Luke chapter 1, 67 through 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray in response to what we just read. God, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for these words of Zechariah as he is prophesying about Jesus and his son, John the Baptist. Lord, thank you that that you were at work saving your people. That you remember the promises you've made. And at Christmas time, we see you making good on those promises. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So just like last week, this song did not just come out of the blue. There is a backstory to it. And the backstory of Zechariah's song includes the same angel, Gabriel. This is the same angel who visited Mary. In Luke 1, Gabriel shows up inside the temple with Zechariah as Zechariah is doing his priestly duty. And Gabriel, Gabriel tells the, that Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, will become pregnant. Now, this is a dream come true for them. But it was too good to believe for Zechariah. Here is Zechariah's response in Luke 1, 18 to 20, to this unbelievable news. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, 
and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah, a priest, a holy man of God, finds it impossibly difficult to believe such great news from God. He finds it hard that God can be trusted, and can you blame him? Zechariah is logically trying to understand how God is going to do what he promised. The problem is, is that what God said was not logical. It didn't make sense. God can and does work through logical means often, but if you read something in the Bible and it doesn't make sense, believe it anyways. God can be trusted even when logic says otherwise. This angel gives him a consequence for his lack of faith. Zechariah is silent. He is unable to speak until what was foretold happens. And so several months pass, and Elizabeth gives birth to a son. And on this son's eighth day, he was circumcised and given the name John. We know him as John the Baptist. Now, Elizabeth gave him this name, and everyone around was confused because it wasn't a family name. It was an unexpected name for this child. And so this is what happens in Luke 1, 62 through 64. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. Blessing God. Zechariah had been silent for at least nine months, unable to speak. And he begins to speak. What does he say? He starts to bless God. This song of Zechariah is what he says after nine months of being unable to say a word. The last words that he spoke were words of doubt. And now he speaks words of faith. Zechariah says that God deserves praise for salvation. God comes and redeems his people. God raises up a horn of salvation, and God uses this newborn son, John, to help prepare the way for Jesus, for God's salvation. Let's look again at verses 67 and 68. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is before Pentecost in Acts. This is before the Holy Spirit comes and stays in believers. The Holy Spirit is interacting with Zechariah much like he did in the Old Testament. He would come and he would go. Zechariah was a priest. He served in the temple, the place where God resided with his creation. The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah and he prophesies. He says that God deserves praise for his salvation. He spends the next several verses in his song explaining why God deserves praise for this coming salvation. God deserves praise for who he is and what he does. 
God deserves praise for who he is and what he does. As you approach Christmas time this year, do you recognize that truth? Or is Christmas time for you a growing to-do list or shopping list? Have you taken time to stop and recognize that God deserves praise for who he is and what he does at Christmas? God deserves praise for who he is and what he does. And at Christmas time, we see that God remembers his people and he sends the promised Messiah. Now, there's many reasons to give God praise. There are many reasons that you may be thinking of right now why you should give God praise. But the biggest and best reason to give God praise is the birth of Jesus. Jesus coming as the promised Messiah is the greatest reason to give God praise. We give gifts at Christmas, just like I told the kids a minute ago. We give gifts at Christmas because God gives the world. He gives you and I the greatest gift in Jesus. The greatest gift you and I could ever receive is a gift that forgives us from all the evil things that we think, all the evil things that we do. It's a gift that puts us, in a, puts us back in a right relationship with God. That's the gift of Jesus. God deserves praise for who he is and what he does. Zechariah's song continues in describing some of the things that God does for his people. Look back at verse 68. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Here in a few weeks, the beginning of the year in January, we're going to be, begin a series on the first book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at Genesis. And what happens here in Luke 1, verse 68, has its uh, foundation with God coming and redeeming his people. The roots go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to be spending a week in January, in February, and probably a little bit of March, a week on each of the first 11 chapters in Genesis. And we're doing this because once you understand the beginning of the Bible, the rest of it makes much more sense. So let me give you a preview of what we're going to discover in Genesis as I explain the significance of God visiting in redeeming his people. In Genesis 1, we get this picture of how God orderly creates everything. In verses 1 and through 5 of Genesis 1, God creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He makes light, and he separates the darkness with the light. He calls the light day and the dark night. In verses 6 through 8, God creates the sky. This is the atmosphere that covers the earth. In verses 9 through 13, God gathers the waters that are on the earth and dry land shows up, and, and then there are vegetation, trees, and plant life that begins to happen. In verses 14 through 19, God creates the stars. He creates the heavenly bodies, and these are useful lights. God created lights at the very beginning, but here in verses 16, we, we finally have the sun and the moon. That's interesting. We'll talk more about what that is in January. In verses 20 through 23, God creates life in the waters. He creates life in the air. And then verses 24 through 31, he creates life on the earth. This includes humanity. And God creates humanity in his image. This is significant because by being image bearers of God, you and I have a purpose. God created us differently than he created everything else because we have a purpose. From the very beginning, God created humanity for a specific purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? 
Do you remember? I spoke about this briefly last week to those who were here. Do you remember? God created humanity in his image. That is to say, we are image bearers of God because he created us to do holy work alongside him. God created humanity to do holy work alongside God. As a human, you have purpose. In Genesis 1, we see God carefully ordering creation in a way for God to make a space for God and humanity to do holy work together. From the very beginning, God wants a home with humanity to work together, to be together, to spend time together, and to enjoy the gifts of God together. The Garden of Eden is that first home. The Garden of Eden is where heaven and earth first meet. And we see humans doing that holy work alongside God. Genesis 2, we see God forming Adam and giving him a job to do, to do that holy work. Adam is to work alongside God in the new creation. God puts Adam in the garden, and God has Adam to work it and to keep it, to do that holy work. He gives the animals names. God could have named the animals. God could have tended the garden, but God brought Adam to do that because he wants to do holy work alongside him. This is what God intended. In the Garden of Eden, we have God and man working and living together. It is good. God creates Eve to be a helper for Adam. God is with them both. It is perfect. This is God's idea. This is what God intended when he created. Then in Genesis 3, we see this wonderfully perfect picture of humanity living and working alongside God come to an end. Adam and Eve have everything they need. Probably they have more than they need. God has given them purpose. He's given them a paradise. But he puts limits on them. God puts limits on us today. God puts limits on you. He puts limits on me. There's limits today. And we can't simply do anything we want. The Bible shows us that God is the creator. And as the creator... God gets to make the rules. You and I live under God's rules, whether you recognize him as God or not. Adam and Eve have access to almost everything in this paradise. Adam and Eve have access to almost everything in this paradise except for a fruit tree. It was in Genesis 3 that Eve is tempted by this talking serpent into eating the fruit of that forbidden tree. She eats. Adam eats. Sin happens. Everything changes. Separation begins to spread between God and man. Death enters. There are consequences for breaking God's laws. I go through these first three chapters quickly of Genesis, because it's important to see the significance of God coming and redeeming his people, because there's consequences for breaking God's laws. Sin creates distance between God and you. Sin creates distance between you and God because of the sin that started in the Garden of Eden 
and that lives in each one of us, we cannot have the close connection to God that, we, that He wanted us to have apart from Jesus. We aren't able to do the holy work alongside God that we were created for. Sin has removed us from the garden and God's presence. But God's, in this story, in the song of Zechariah, in his song, Zechariah praises God for coming to us because God longs for his creation. He loves humanity in a special way. Because of that love, he comes to us. And it's good that God comes to us because we can't, apart from Jesus, go to God. Sin separates us. God comes to us, and Zechariah, now full of faith, understands this. God is redeeming his people. God is going to bring his people back to that ideal relationship that starts in the garden. That is worth praising God for. Let's look more at this redeeming work in verses 69 through 75. And God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah gives us a brief history lesson on God and his faithfulness and the covenant that he makes with his people. We see that God's salvation comes from the line of David, from his family tree. And that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke about this. They knew about this coming Messiah. They spoke about it. That salvation is for the, the collective group of the people of God. It's interesting. Zechariah here speaks in political terms. He says that salvation is from the enemies of the people of God. And if you've read much in the Old Testament, you see how the nations around Israel haven't really been friendly to Israel you see how the nations around them have kept them in captivity for periods of time. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for generations. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, they inflicted pain on the people of God. And this is why many in Israel thought that the Messiah would be a political or a military leader. Many were hoping in a savior that would finally put to place the enemies of Israel. This isn't exactly what happens. Jesus isn't a military or political leader, but we see that as God saves, he mercifully saves. He saves his people from a greater enemy, a greater enemy from without, a great, an enemy that is within. God mercifully saves. And when you're saved from the enemy within, salvation is merciful because we can't save ourselves. The separation from God is too great. The punishment for our sin is too much for us to bear. God steps in and he mercifully saves. Look at verses 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Our salvation leads to that holy work that we were created for. Do you see that here? We are saved so that we can serve God without fear because the sin that separates us is no longer there. We return to the holy work that God created us to do alongside him for the rest of our everlasting life as Christians. God mercifully saves. Zechariah mentions this idea of a horn of salvation. Did you pick up on that and wonder what in the world that means? In the ancient Near East, this, the horn symbolized strength because animals who had horns were big and strong. Jesus power, is powerful. Jesus powerfully saves. Jesus is this horn of salvation. The Messiah, Jesus, is powerful. He's powerful enough to save you and bring you back to the holy work that you were created for. It doesn't matter what your past was like. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're currently doing. Jesus is powerful. He can powerfully save. Let's finish this song by looking at the last four verses. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah must have been a proud daddy. He must have been a proud father. His miracle son is only eight days old, but he knows what John will do. John will do the holy work of preparing the way for Jesus. John will tell of salvation. and He will tell of forgiveness. John will share the mercy of God to those around him. John is the last Old Testament-style prophet. Now, we're in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. This is the New Testament. But John acts much like an Old Testament-style prophet. John the Baptist was prophesied in the final words of your Old Testament. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is what Isaiah says as he prophesies. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is going to use John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, to point people to Jesus. The last words of the Old Testament point you to John the Baptist. John the Baptist points you to Jesus Christ. The last thing in your notes, Christmas means comfort. God uses John the Baptist to speak tenderly to his people. John tells of the comfort of Christ that is coming. 
Peace is coming. Comfort is coming. Sin is forgiven. Christmas means comfort. Let me take just a moment and speak to those who are not following after Jesus. You are living life on your terms. You're following your own desires and your own plans. And you know that if you were to die this afternoon, you would not spend an eternity with God in heaven. If that is you, you're not alone in this room. There are others just like you. Let me say first, thank you. Thank you for spending the last 30 minutes listening about a God that you don't necessarily believe in. Let me also say that this God loves you and he is after you. God is after you because of his love for you. We sang about John 3.16, about his love for you. Maybe you've heard of this verse. You know what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God is after you because of that love that he has for you, to bring you back to the idea that he created you for. God loves you. I'll invite the worship team back up, and we're going to sing a, a song of invitation here in a moment. And if you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus, this is a time for you to come forward, to speak with me, or to pray. If you would like to find comfort this Christmas, comfort is found in Jesus. If you're looking for peace, peace is found in Jesus at Christmas. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When you look around the world and you see hate, when you see war and strife, no, that is not what God intends. Those are the results of sin, of the evil that's inside all of us. But we don't have to look around the world to realize that there's sin. There's sin inside each one of us. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that there is hate and pride and strife inside each one of us. That's not God's ideal for you either. God is after you because he loves you. Would you bring Jesus this Christmas? God, we thank you for this gift of Jesus. Thank you for seeing the problem of our sin, the separation that it caused. Thank you for promising Jesus in the Old Testament. Thank you for delivering on that promise. You are good to us. Give us comfort. Give us peace. Give us joy this Christmas. Help us to find that in Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.